my fellow Americans, trickle down. Trickle down economics has never worked. And it's time to grow the economy from the bottom and the middle out. Wow. Did he say that out loud? Yes, he did. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Never is. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Rochester, New York on WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. And yes, we stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another special edition of the Bradcast today. Let me start here. These numbers, if they can be trusted, are kind of astounding. A huge number of viewers who turned in to watch President Biden's first address to a joint session of Congress, what we usually call a State of the Union address, except for some reason in the first year of a presidency, really seem uh, to, uh, to suggest that the American people like what they saw and heard and came away from it feeling remarkably optimistic about the nation, at least according to CBS News's snap poll of about a thousand Americans who said they watched the speech by just gobsmacking numbers, frankly. 89% of speech viewers described the, the president as presidential. 89% described him as caring. 84% as inspiring, 80% as bold. It's true, there was a slight majority of Democrats, about 54% in that sampling of those who watched the speech. Still, those numbers kind of blew me away today. Overall, 85% of viewers approved of the speech compared to just 15%, 15% who did not. 78% said it made them feel more optimistic about the country, which, in fact, may just be one of Joe Biden's superpowers. 74% believe Biden's plans would help them. 74%. Just 12% worried that they would 
personally be hurt by Biden's uh, proposals. His plan for creating jobs was liked by 85 percent of viewers. Eighty three percent were made to feel as if the covid crisis was, quote, getting better. Oh, and at the same time, as long as we're on the feel good portion of today's program, 73 percent of viewers said they were, quote, proud seeing women as vice president and speaker of the House behind Joe Biden on the podium. That's just one poll, of course. But CNN's numbers found a similar theme. Seventy one percent of those who watched the speech said they walked away feeling more optimistic about the country's direction. By a wide margin, speech watchers said the said that uh, Biden's policy proposals would move the country in the right direction. Seventy three percent rather than the wrong direction. Only twenty seven percent. This is most notable, frankly, by way of comparison with the very same polling numbers uh, among the same people taken just before the address. At that point, 67 percent saw Biden's plans as moving the country in the right direction. So he received a six point bump on that point alone just because of the speech. And perhaps most notably, the movement in that uh, in that number came largely from independents and Republicans who watched the speech among Republicans. The share saying that Biden's policies would move the country in the right direction grew from just 13 percent before the speech to 27 percent after the speech. Among independents, the percentage rose from 61 percent before the speech to 73 percent afterwards. So, yeah. Wow. On specific issues, the numbers were similarly high in the CNN survey. The right direction on the COVID pandemic, 86 percent. Right direction on racial injustice, 74 percent. On the economy, 72 percent. Gun laws, 70 percent. Taxes, 70 percent. Where was he the weakest? Well, on immigration. There his approval rating was only, in quotes, 65 percent. But of course, uh, you know, uh, nearly two thirds, 64 percent, said the proposals he outlined in the speech were about right ideologically. Just 31 percent said they were too liberal and just five percent said they were not liberal enough. Those people are all guests on the broadcast, of course. President Joe Biden declared on Wednesday night that, quote, America is rising anew. He called for an expansion of federal programs to drive the economy past the pandemic and to broadly extend the social safety net on a scale not seen in decades. In his first address to Congress, he pointed optimistically to the nation's emergence from the virus scourge as a moment for America to prove its democracy can still work and maintain primacy in the world. Speaking in highly personal terms while demanding massive structural changes, the president marked his first 100 days in office by proposing the American Families Plan, a $1.8 trillion investment in children, families and education to help build an economy devastated by the virus and to compete with global competitors. That comes on the heels of his $2.25 trillion American Jobs Plan proposal to rebuild the nation's infrastructure and harden it for climate resiliency while creating millions of good-paying jobs in the bargain, which, of course, follows the passage already 
of the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan for stimulus and emergency relief in response to the virus, resulting in so far 220 million COVID shots in arms in his first 100 days and some 160 million individual payments of $1,400 to date, with many more benefits still to come from that plan. Biden's speech, as AP characterizes it, represented both an audacious vision and a considerable gamble. Uh, He is governing with the most slender of majorities in Congress, and even some in his own party have blanched at the price tag of his proposals. It should be noted as well, however, though AP does not, that some in his party also feel his proposals do not go far enough. And as to the price tag, some have blanched at the notion that it all must be paid for with things like tax cuts on the wealthy. Those liberals argue that while some of it should be paid for, much of it will in fact pay for itself. At the same time, the speech highlighted Biden's fundamental belief in the power of government as a force for good. That's a change from most administrations over the past 40 years, and it was at the center of his argument that government and democracy can still work for our nation and its people. The struggle is far from over. The question of whether our democracy will long endure is both ancient and urgent. Can our democracy deliver on its promise? Can our democracy deliver the most, to the most pressing needs of our people? Can our democracy overcome the lies, anger, hate, and fears that have pulled us apart? America's adversaries, the autocrats of the world, are betting we can't. They believe we're too full of anger and division and rage. They look at the images of the mob that assaulted the Capitol as proof that the sun is sending out American democracy. But they're wrong. You know it, I know it. But we have to prove them wrong. We have to prove democracy still works, that our government still works, and we can deliver for our people. Joe Biden went on to argue that America is on the move again, turning peril into possibility, crisis into opportunity, setback into strength. When Biden first proposed and then passed his remarkably progressive $1.9 trillion American rescue plan with the bulk of benefits going for the first time in at least 40 years to the poor and middle class instead of the wealthy and corporations, we argued on this program, never mind ending the Trump era, Biden's proposals may finally be ending the Reagan era and perhaps the greatest con in American history. Yes, even greater than anything the last guy in office was able to dream up. Specifically, the government was not the solution. Government, in fact, was the problem, according to Reagan's con. To make his case for government investment, uh, Joe Biden even cited a statistic, adding a bit of a shot at Reaganomics. From a report by the Institute for Policy Studies, whose author Chuck Collins came on this program earlier in the year to discuss. 20 million Americans lost their job in the pandemic. At the same time, 650 billionaires in America saw their net worth increase by more than $1 trillion in the same exact period. And they're now worth more than $4 trillion. My fellow Americans, trickle down. Trickle-down economics has never worked. It's time to grow the economy from the bottom and the middle out.
Ouch. Nonetheless, with, uh, ironically enough, what I'm going to call Reagan-esque optimism of uh, Joe Biden's address, even the Washington Post is starting to notice. The paper's Dan Baltz observes today as President Biden marked his first 100 days in office with a speech to the nation on Wednesday. The scope and implications of his domestic agenda have come sharply into focus. Together, he writes... They represent the most dramatic shift in federal economic and social welfare policy since Ronald Reagan was elected 40 years ago. And as I noted at the top, so far anyway, America seems to like that idea a whole lot. Bald says Reagan's small govern government philosophy resulted in a decades-long squeeze on the federal government, especially domestic spending and on tax policies that mainly benefited the wealthiest Americans. Biden said that to win the competition for the future, the nation needs, quote, a once-in-a-generation investment in our families and our children. His speech, he said, was a reflection of his presidency to date, an appeal for big and bold action described in the most workaday rhetoric and by a leader whose demeanor and temperament are the very opposite of his predecessor. But he notes what makes Biden's situation unique from those of past presidents who have pushed for major changes, whether FDR, Lyndon Johnson or Ronald Reagan, is the difference between sizable, real or working political majorities and the thinnest possible majorities upon which Biden's hopes rest in Congress. Biden, he says, is attempting transformative change on a base smaller by far than any of those previous presidents enjoyed, which is what makes the political gamble so big. Negotiations lie ahead and Biden has signaled he's prepared to make some changes. But in broad strokes, he has set his course and it is anything but timid, incremental or risk free. And I would add long overdue. As usual, after such events, we've got a fine panel of fellow troublemakers and muckrakers here to join us today to make sense of both Joe Biden's first 100 days and his striking first pandemic address to a joint session of Congress that isn't called a State of the Union for some reason. And we, be we begin, as usual, with our own Desi Doyen, who, unlike over the past four years, I don't think you did not have to stay up all night pulling out <laughs> your hair in order to pull usable, understandable, not insane sound bites for our use today. Yes, it was much, much easier to have a president who speaks in complete sentences. Imagine that. Yes. Also, uh, as usual, a key presidential moment in history, no matter the president, we are joined by the one and only much beloved Heather Digby Parton, longtime old school blogger known as simply Digby at the Hullabaloo blog and a longtime award winning opinion journalist and contributor at Salon.com. Welcome back, Ms. Parton. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Always delighted. And finally, and it's been a while, so I'm very happy to have him back. Another old school blogger uh, known largely as uh, simply Drift Glass who uh, actually once vetted some guy by the name of Barack Obama for higher office back when Obama was running for the Senate in Chicago back in the day. He also used to be known as Mr. Electra Electrico on the Twitters until he got banned for some reason. Uh, and he is still the longtime host of the Professional Left podcast 
which he and his equally clever and delightful wife, Fran, or Blue Gal, uh, record every Friday from their home in what they describe as flyover country, Illinois. Welcome back, Drift Glass. And what in the world did you do to get banned from Twitter? Well, thank you. And I, I just want to say uh, having to follow Digby is like having being a skiffle band having to follow the Rolling Stones. So <laughs> you will bear with me as I, as I try to keep up with her. Good she's, luck. Uh, she's the bright light of, of blogging that the rest of us follow. <laughs> yes. Um, I, uh, I referred to someone as Trash on Twitter, uh-huh. who had stepped to me and called liberals like me uh, a, a thing that I won't repeat on the air. Mm-hmm. And I said, uh, you're trash and your opinions are garbage and no one likes you and you're silly. <laughs> and um, I was immediately banned for life from Twitter. Really? For yeah. life? You didn't even for get life. another shot to retract, nope. to delete, or anything? Nope. Uh, they, they have an appeals <clears throat> process, which yeah. is very efficient. Yes. Uh, you write them and say, I think this was silly and I think you should undo it. And uh, a robot answers you and says, we will get back to you one day. And they never do. Yeah. So I've been doing that once a week since January. Yeah. Um, and I have been occasionally dipping into... Uh, some of our Never Trump friends and some of our Republican friends and mm-hmm. pointing out the horrendous things they get away with saying on Twitter. Oh, yeah. There's never any consequences, especially if you're, frankly, a white guy with a blue check. And hmm. um, that has not made any difference. The bot always responds the same. We will get back to you soon. So, wow. You know, say be. So even re- deleting the tweet won't get you back? Didn't matter. Okay. Didn't matter. Because right. well, um, I had the same problem. They uh, told me the same thing uh, after, and I didn't insult anyone. I actually had an accurate tweet about voting systems uh, that if I didn't delete it, then I would be banned. And eventually I uh, I deleted it, unlike mm-hmm. you. So, all right. Well, anyway, we do miss you on the Twitters, although I suspect you may not miss the Twitters. Uh, in any event, all right, we got Des- Desi, Digby, and Drift Glass. I guess I need a one-word name for myself that starts with D. No <laughs> suggestions, please. All right, let me uh, start here. A full disclosure, uh, for me at least today, I-, I like this guy. I loved his speech. I never thought that I'd either you know, believe that or say that, but I, I-, I actually thought the speech was fantastic. Uh, now, is is that just because I'm grading him on a curve following the last guy, or was it really that good? And I'll start with Drift Glass so you don't have to follow Digby. <laughs> oh, great. Now, now she follows me, and I yes. look like an idiot. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, I thought it was a very fine speech. I thought it was very old-school, LBJ, Humphrey, um, Roosevelt, liberal speech. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was aspirational. It was simple. The names of the acts that have passed already or are coming up are rescue, family, jobs. Mm-hmm. Very simple to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, I, Joe Biden was not by any stretch of the imagination my first pick or my second or my fifth. <laughs> um, and for the last hundred days, believe me, I would like to get in on some of this uh, automatically contrarian money because uh-huh. it's very good. Yes. But uh, honestly, I, I think he did a, a fine job. Uh, of delivering the speech, and his first hundred days have been excellent. And there's a, a portion of it, I mean, it's, it's all good, but there's a portion of it that involves manufacturing and blue-collar jobs that is right in my wheelhouse. And I just listened and, and was was thrilled to hear someone say, um, and now the contrary to that is that most of these things were said by Barack Obama mm. during his administration. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, um, I briefed Senator Obama and Senator uh, Kennedy 
back mm-hmm. in the day on the manufacturing stuff we were doing in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And uh, that found its way into his campaign. A number of other things found its way there. But nobody listened, mm-hmm. or he said it wrong, or because he was the wrong color. Um, mm-hmm. Joe Biden is everybody's grandpa, and he, he seems very sincere. I believe he is very sincere. And he looks like he wants to do the right thing. And I think it was about as good as you're going to get, which by my count is pretty darn good. Uh, Digby, I think it was after one of our uh, one of our post uh, debate shows last year, we, we discussed that Americans tend to elect the person that they like the most, the most likable, no matter their policies. You know, it was the saxophone playing uh, baby boomer Bill Bill Clinton, more likable than the old bureaucrat Bush Sr. And then his son, good old boy George W., was the one Americans wanted to have a beer with over the stiff Al Gore. Obama was funnier than the cranky old John McCain. And then, of course, the showman Trump was bedazzling compared to the demonized Hillary Clinton in his first election. And then after Trump became so hateable Americans elected good old Uncle Joe. At that post-debate show, I think we surmised, if I recall, that Democrats had nominated, never mind his policies, the most likable guy in the nation to take on, you know, the the most hateable guy in the nation, the nation's top villain. Uh, is that strategy now paying off, and will it continue long enough to actually get these big policies we'll talk about in a little bit uh, to somehow get them pushed through an incredibly narrow majority in Congress? Well, it sure can't hurt, right? I mean, the fact that he's likable and that, I mean, the, the Republicans are, are you know, <laughs> twisting themselves into pretzels, trying to figure out a way to demonize him, and instead they spend half their time, you know, talking about Dr. Seuss and going after Kamala Harris because they really can't seem to figure out a way to take on Joe Biden, the person. I mean, mm-hmm. they went after his son. Uh, that didn't get very far. Um, but he, he personally is just very difficult to touch that way. And I also think there's just something, I mean, let's not forget, you know, when uh, we, we, I've been, I'm not going to speak for anybody else here, but I've been watching this guy for a long time. Mm-hmm. And Joe Biden has evolved. Uh, he was not always the most likable guy in the room. He mm. was an edgy guy mm-hmm. in his early years. I mean, he was, you know, had a little bit of a, a feistiness about mm-hmm. him that often, in my view, wasn't all that pleasant. Um, and he he had a bit of a contrarian in him. He was somebody that, you know, he seemed like a, a very ambitious young guy. Um, and age has mellowed him. And, mm. and in, in a lot of ways, I think that it's made him, and yeah, I don't want to get into too much armchair psychology here, but I do think that, you know, at a certain age, and after having been through everything that he's been through and having been, you know, at the seat of power for eight years under Obama, that, um, you know, he learned some stuff. And I think it, I think life and experience and, and, you know, the time that he came up in, I think it has changed him. He's always swum in the mainstream of the party to some degree. Mm-hmm. And as the party has moved left, which it definitely has, he has moved with it. And, you know, it speaks well of him, in my view. I mean, people should evolve, right? I mean, if you just are stuck where you were when you were 22 years old for the rest of your life, I think maybe you're not really paying attention. You know, there's a lot a lot to be learned by experience, and so I give him credit for that, and I think it shows, and I think people feel confident that he's a guy who, you know, is has a has a temperament and a uh, and a flexibility and an ability to kind of, you know, roll with the punches. 
uh, in a way that makes him, you know, the mm. man of the moment. I mean, uh, this is this is what we need, right? Uh, I mean, we we need this. I'm still thinking about that comment about changing since you're 23, and um, <laughs> I got to talk to my shrink anyway. Um, <laughs> Are, are, are we all just uh, you heard those numbers that I uh, rattled off at the top about uh, not just uh, Joe Biden a, a, as a person, but, you know, about his policy proposals. Uh, they're, you know, pretty incredible numbers. Is, is it because we're all just tired of the previous guy or is there a real hunger now and not just among Democrats, um, but even among independents and Republicans for a government that actually works as a government again. Uh, you know, looking after, taking care of its people, investing in its people. Because if so, Heather, it would be the first time uh, in my political life, at least, that I have ever been able to enjoy a government like that. I mean, I, you know, I'm a child of, of Reaganism when, you know, the government has had nothing to do pretty much with my life other than telling me things I can't do and, and, and sending us all to war. Well, that's true. We've, I think we've all been, the, those of us on the, on the left side have all been traumatized by the, you know, the horror of raised expectations being dashed uh, every time we dare to hope. So, you know, that's, that's kind of a, a thing. I think we've all, you know, got a little PTSD, um, political PTSD. A little, a little. Uh, yeah, a yeah, lot. Right. Um, but, you know, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's also, look, we've just been through hell in this country, and we're, st- it, it, we're kind of still in it. I mean, it, the, America seems to be working its way out of the, the horror of the pandemic, but the rest of the world, I mean, there are places, India, for instance, which is just, it's, it's a nightmare mm-hmm. what's happening there. It's, it's absolutely horrifying. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's a hunger to have somebody other than a circus clown, <laughs> it, you know, at the wheel when you're, when, you know, we've just been reminded, I mm-hmm. think, but they, but they say, but it wasn't only uh, the circus clown. It wasn't only the person. It seemed like the policies they are, uh, you know, that right. Americans are really hungry for. That they really want this so-called big government that you know Bill Clinton declared to have, you know, been over. Uh, well, we've just been reminded now. that that you know we need government. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> because look what happened. I mean, we were in the, we had this pandemic. It hit us, but you know, and having the the freak show that had been you know sort of entertaining and horror like a you know a horror show for the last four years, it suddenly became pretty clear just what the problem was with that. Because when you really need government, uh, you know, it wasn't there. Mm. It really was not there. They were completely out to lunch, and they were unable to handle it. I mean, I remember, I think I was on here, mm-hmm. where we were talking about it, and I said, who would have ever thought that in the United States of America, where we, you know, shipped people across the world to fight wars, mm. that we couldn't get, you know, masks to New York City. Yeah. I mean, we couldn't do that. We, we literally, they were putting, you know, they were wearing their masks for a month at a time and yeah. putting on garbage bags. So there was a moment there, I think, where a lot of people, it became very clear mm-hmm. that this stuff just did not work. And you mm. put those people in charge, and they're not going to be there when you need them. And of course, for a lot of people in this country, in the middle class and in the working class and, in the, and among the poor, they've known that, right? I mean, they're out there floundering under this trickle-down, mm. you know, it, radical individualism yeah. that's been out there. Yep. And, and, you know, they're kind of going, yeah, mm. guess what, guys? This is what it's like when you're, you're left completely on your own. The idea of collective action, of people working together, of having some kind of entity 
uh, democratic entity, hopefully, that can, you know, that can step up when mm-hmm. you have these things. Suddenly, everybody's kind of going, wow, you know, that was pretty, you know, that's pretty good. And especially since Biden came in, right, he had no transition. They completely, you know, yeah. um, you know, they turned, his, turned that period into a disaster for him. So he had to step in, yep. and immediately things started working better. It was and kind I, of, you know, whoa. Yeah, and I, and I think it shows how much uh, government can do for people when they saw the complete 180 from no vaccines going out and right. states are left on their own to now 200 million vaccinations going out. And, you know, I think that the 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 stark contrast between a government that can't do anything and a government that won't help anybody or will only help a little bit, but they'll make you pay for it in some fashion, like the Trump administration and the Republicans did when they passed their covid rescue, uh, what little they were. And then they had to fight over how little people were going to get. I think that those things were stark contrasts that people actually saw, you know, and I don't know if that'll last, though. That's the question that I have. I think it is a real maybe a real shift, but. But as long as right wing media gets a big time uh, target that they can then now go, at, now go after by demonizing everything, countering that that disinformation is going to be difficult. We will see. And uh, before I get to a break here uh, along those lines, uh, you know, as I was taking notes last night watching this speech, uh, Biden laid out an un- it was just unbelievably broad, far reaching agenda. I mean, these speeches are always sort of like that to some extent. Uh, a laundry list. But this one seemed different to me. It seemed much larger, much broader, much more, uh, as folks are saying, transformational. I'm curious, Driftglass, were you struck the same way? I know you said that some of these policies uh, you had heard before under Biden, but something seemed different this time to me. Could this really be, as I've been arguing, the end of the Reagan era? Well, it, it seemed monumental in, in the literal sense. This is a gigantic uh, piece of work consisting of very simple to understand parts mm-hmm. that each part, everyone can agree, probably, most people can agree, mm-hmm. we need to do, that we haven't done in a long time. And what it does is, just to segue just a little bit, when the drug crisis was in black neighborhoods, it was a moral failing. The drug crisis is in poor white neighborhoods, it's an epidemic that needs to be treated as a medical issue. We've been living under the boot heel of this stern, moral, Republican, libertarian message for this, carrying on of what Digby said, Mm -hmm. for 40 years, of if you fail, it's your own fault. If if you're in trouble, it's your own fault. And it's, it's a sign of moral failing. And if you're not rich, it's your own fault. And the only reason, the only thing standing in your way of, of, being the best to you is this evil government. And suddenly, a whole bunch of people absolutely have to have assistance from the government or they're going to die or they're going to go broke or Mm -hmm. their businesses are going to go out of business. And the only thing Republicans had to offer was a sneer and a campaign that masks aren't real and bleach and shove a UV light where the sun don't shine and madness, just madness, stuff that, that normal people could see is that's just crazy yeah well and so there's there's this once literally in a hundred years crisis where the actual effect of good government is so visible right now in everyone's life Mm -hmm. around the world and certainly in this country that you can now make the case credibly that there are other large problems that we have ignored and disinvested in for decades that we need to fix anyone Mm -hmm. disagree we need roads and bridges anyone disagree that children need school anyone disagree that education is a good thing 
And putting it like that, it really bypasses the elected Republican establishment. Well, it's it's uh, even Republicans believe that school is a good thing. They just don't think that we should invest anything exactly. in it. Yeah. It should be up to the kids to get out there, make a good living for themselves so they can pay for their own schools, apparently. All right, let's take a quick break. Uh, we'll be back with more special coverage of Joe Biden's first not State of the Union address with Digby, Driftglass, and Desi right here on the broadcast. We'll dive into some specific, uh, some policy specifics from Wednesday night's incredibly optimistic speech by Joe Biden. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to the broadcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Tonight, I come to talk about crisis and opportunity, about rebuilding the nation, revitalizing our democracy, and winning the future for America. The worst pandemic in a century the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, the worst attack on our democracy since the Civil War. Now, after just 100 days, I can report to the nation, America is on the move again. 100 days, 100 nights, no one man's Welcome back. It's the broadcast special coverage of Joe Biden's first 100 days and his first address to a, uh, a joint session of Congress with our special guests, of course, Salon's Heather Digby Parton and the pro-left podcast's uh, uh, Drift Glass. Uh, glad you could uh, stay with us. Uh, so the biggest new policy announcement on Wednesday night was the official introduction of the uh, 1.8 eight or one point nine trillion dollar American families plan very briefly if passed. And that remains a big if right now. It would be the largest American investment in child care, paid leave, early education uh, in in recent history, perhaps ever. It would uh, work with states to incentivize universal preschool for all three and four year olds, provide two years of free community college to those who want it, make child care more affordable for low and middle income families. It will create a new national program for family and medical leave long overdue as well and expand the uh, Pell Grants for college by about 20 percent. The plan also provides eight hundred billion dollars worth of tax relief. For families with children, it extends the uh, expanded child tax credit from Biden's COVID relief package. It'll expand that until 2025. And those checks, by the way, I don't think have even begun to show up yet from that uh, uh, the uh, COVID, uh, the American Rescue Plan. But they will at any time. And I think Americans are going to like it. And it also permanently expands Affordable Care Act subsidies. Uh, uh, to uh, lower lower health insurance costs for millions of Americans. That was also expanded in the American Rescue Plan and would be made not permanent here, but extend for a number of years. Heather Digby-Parton, your thoughts on the American Families Plan as a follow-up to his proposed $2.2 trillion American Jobs Plan, which also needs to be passed in the weeks and months ahead. 
Well, from what I understand, uh, just to get into a little bit of process here, is that there, there, I think the, the strategy to get the, those two p- big, huge plans passed <laughs> mm-hmm. is that I think they think they, can, they might be able to get an infrastructure plan passed possibly with bipartisan, with a, with a bipartisan majority. Mm-hmm. I don't have any idea if that's true. There seems to be some work, you know, around the edges, that getting Getting to 10 Republicans seems impossible to me, but, you know, who knows? I mean, maybe maybe they'll do it. Infrastructure, the, the, the infrastructure plan is super, super popular. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is really popular, and yeah. there is going to be pressure on Republicans to pass that thing. So maybe they think that they can do it. The other, the American Family Plan... I think is probably going to have to go through reconciliation. There's, I don't even think they're pretending that mm-hmm. they can get Republicans to sign off on that. And mm-hmm. if you were watching the the uh, the, the speech last night, <laughs> you know you saw them all sitting on their hands at the mention of you know we're cutting child poverty and <laughs> you're going what is wrong with you people? Yeah, they couldn't even clap for that for no. cutting child poverty. <laughs> and half, what is wrong with you monsters? <laughs> I know. I mean, exactly. What's wrong with you monsters? I mean, what kind of people are you? I mean, it was like, what? Yeah. Um, so, you know, they, but they were just completely incapable of even applauding at the idea of it and then arguing about the means, right? I mean, which is, yeah. you know, what a normal person would do. So they are just adamantly opposed to that. So that's the process, I think, that they're going to try. Now, all of this is happening at the same time, by the way. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got, you know, there's all... So the, these two, even though they may go through separate processes, are going to be coming down the line at the same time, which is why the next 100 days are going to be incredible. Well, and, I, you know, whether or not they are actually going to be able to do it, as to the substance, of course, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, it's it's amazing. I can't even believe I'm seeing it. It's like, what? <laughs> what? You know, what, what are you talking I was Who actually, are you? I was you know, actually, where did you come from? <laughs> I know. Well, actually, as I was reading it, the first, as I was going through all the details on it when it was uh, introduced a day or two ago, I was thinking, well, this isn't very revolutionary. These are things that, and then I realized, well, they are revolutionary here. The reason I thought they weren't revolutionary is because I'm reading them and I'm thinking, you know, all of the rest of the world already has all of this stuff. <laughs> Family leave, and you know, and I'm and I'm reading it and thinking, well, Europe has this. All of the other countries have it. It's just we don't have it. This seems like normal sort of workaday stuff, uh, and it is in pretty much every nation on the earth except for the U.S. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, we we've been, you know, and of course, you know, if you people like us on the left, you know, we've been kind of, you know, every once in a while they'll raise up and go, oh, come on, you know, can't we have preschool? Can we at least have that, please? <laughs> right. You know, isn't that everybody knows that right. everybody does better if you have that? You're kidding me, right? right. I mean, look at what a heavy lift healthcare was. And even that, we got half a loaf, but I mean, it was something, but it was yeah. huge. It was like the most monumental thing, which most, which, you know, the rest of the developed world had had since World War II. I right. mean, right. you know, this is when, when our grandparents were, were around. So, I mean, this is the way it works here. And, you know, I think that, that the, the administration feels like they have a moment, that there is a possibility that they can get this get this done. Now, you know, you, you mentioned in your opening about the FDR, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's, it's important to remember one thing. I mean, FDR did have a huge majority when he, when he took office, right. and of course the Great Depression was the most monumental crisis 
you know, we, we had ever faced on mm-hmm. an economic basis, a domestic problem. And there was looming fascism hanging out there, right? So, you know, it's like, Kind of like today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, talk, yeah, exactly. And talk about a thing. Now, one of the things that everybody goes, well, he had this gigantic majority. It made it easier. Not really. Because in those days, you had, you, you know, you had a majority, but he had the whole Southern Caucus in there. Mm. Those, were, those were conservatives, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they, this, those people are now Republicans. And you had this sort of northeastern Republican types who mm-hmm. are now, you know, in the in the Democratic Party. So it sorted itself into a partisan uh, polarization, but it's always been polarized ideologically. Mm. So you know, let's not. I mean, I'm yeah. not saying it wasn't easier for FDR. I'm just saying that it isn't impossible with with Joe Biden because even though it's it's you know it's very very tight margin. I kind of think it always was, right? It yeah. depends on the crisis. It depends on whether or not there's enough, you know, electoral clout behind the the win, which, you know, Biden won big, even though the Electoral College, which is an anachronistic, you know, pile of garbage, uh, sort of made his win debatable among some people. But the truth is he won big. And yeah. yeah. He has a mandate to do these things. If, oh. if, if by win you mean stolen, I'm just, I just wanted to get I just wanted to get some of that contrarian money that uh, Drift Glass was talking about yeah, earlier. And I would say that, yeah. that um, one thing that FDR also had going for him was he did not have a pervasive social media and right-wing media echo chamber right. that uh, that has taken over the public airwaves. Drift Glass, one of the um, one of the thoughts that I had as I was looking at this was, uh, well, first I wonder why aren't these two bills, the American Jobs Plan and the American American Families Plan. Why aren't they just combined into one, and 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 you know both passed together under reconciliation? Because I know that some Dems fear that oh they'll pass one like the Jobs Plan, the you know the Infrastructure Plan, and then everyone will run out of steam before passing the Human Infrastructure Plan of the American Families Act. But Heather brings up a good point. If they can get some buy-in from Republicans to pass an infrastructure bill on the stuff that Republicans insist are infrastructure, roads and bridges, things made of concrete, and that's it, plus 5G for some reason. If they can pass that with Republicans through normal business, can they then take out all of the other stuff from the jobs plan that they had to cut to get Republicans and just put it in there with the American Families Plan? Yeah, well... I'd like to remind you that Roosevelt didn't have Fox News, but he did have the Chicago Tribune. Mm. <laughs> right. Mm. You know, True. There, there, were, there were right-wing rags back then, too. Oh, definitely. Um, the, uh, I, I, I think it's wise that they're doing this in two steps, um, because they can approach them very differently. Um, one thing I think that, that was very smart is that there are no new agencies created here. Ah. Um, the Families Act is all about cutting checks mm. to people. Mm-hmm doing what government does really well. It right checks the people, cuts their taxes, gives them subsidies, and so forth, mm. which is very understandable and comes straight to you. Um, and that can be passed, I believe, under reconciliation, because that's what it does. It's spending money. And the, the button on the end of that was, by the way, your $2 trillion tax cut did nothing. Yes. It didn't pay for itself, so shut up when it comes to deficit. Yeah. Um, the manufacturing portion, or the jobs portion, mm-hmm. um, we found in Chicago that we could actually get around objections from elected officials, such as they were, by going directly to the manufacturers. And we could make a coalition between the Illinois Manufacturing Association, which is very conservative, and the Chicago Federation of Labor, because they had, a, they had an intense common interest. The CFL needed 
union members, and the Illinois Manufacturing Association needed workers to man the plants. And so if you can get somebody like the National Association of Manufacturers to, to do what you know a lot of presidents have done in the past, especially someone like Truman, going over the heads of the people in the opposition party, going directly to the constituents and saying, look, write your congressperson. Don't you want your manufacturing base revitalized and you go right through the Rust Belt cities where that's appropriate? Mm-hmm. Don't you want your, your kid to be able to have a middle-class life in a middle-class job just like your grandpa did? Mm-hmm. And you can really, really sell this by putting the Republican Party in the position of trying to tell their own constituents, no, we don't want manufacturing in America. No, mm-hmm. we don't want blue-color jobs, which is no place they want to be. Now, it might fail because... You know, they're crazy, and they do crazy <laughs> things. But it, I think it's a valid attempt to sort of skirt around the people who were sitting in the chamber and talk directly to business owners, manufacturers, sourcers, steel makers, and so forth, saying, we're going to have a whole bunch of business for you, and we're going to use government money to buy American products. And if you want that, you need to talk to Mitch McConnell, and you need to talk to Kevin McCarthy and tell them, that standing in the way of this is insane, and then leave it to them to do so, and then, then market it as blue-collar and market the family as helping kids and helping the elderly and mm-hmm. giving people money, and whatever doesn't work in one bill, you can transfer the other. But and for, for a, a short agenda, for a one-year agenda, it's spectacular. I've, I've never seen anything like other than, you know... Kennedy promising to go to the moon. I can't think of anything comparable in my lifetime. Well, if you're talking about the American, uh, which one are we talking about? The American Jobs Act is actually a five-year agenda to be paid yeah. for over eight years. Yeah. So, I, you know, I and, but you make a good point about uh, that it doesn't create any new agencies, which sort of takes away the, and we hear this all the time when Democrats propose things. Oh, Democrats want to create a huge new government bureaucracy. Exactly. And that's not present here. It's the same bureaucracy. They're just spending more on stuff that people actually care about. Yeah. Uh, it excellent. Very smart point. We, we also know that, uh, you know, Republicans obviously are going to be pretty much a no on a lot of this stuff just because that's apparently what they think is their job now to say no. Uh, so anything that passes is going to have to go through reconciliation. But. You know, I've been reading about the opposition to uh, both of these bills, the family plan and the uh, jobs plan from Democrats who actually and I thought, oh, it's going to be an article about how they're, uh, you know, moderate uh, conservative Democrats or whatever. And this is just too much spending or whatever. Actually, it seems like the big pushback is coming from Democrats who think, well, let's there should be some tax cuts to pay for this. But. Um, the proposals will largely pay for themselves through increased economic activity and, and thus incre- increases uh, in revenue to the government. So maybe we don't have to, uh, you know, raise tax levels on, uh, on, on, on rich people and corporations. That was kind of a surprise to me. Are, are they right, Drift Glass, to sort of take away the idea that all of this must be paid for? Well, there's a... There's a moral case to be made for raising taxes on people who are making trillions of dollars um, in the period of the widest economic valley between the haves and have-nots since mm-hmm. the Gilded Age. It's just obscene that this amount of money is being held in, in the hands of so few people who do not want to reinvest it back in the economy. 
the reason, one of the many reasons that we had a 98% tax rate and a 74% tax rate was to force business owners to reinvest in their business, force them to spend the money on doing the things that they should have been doing all along. Um, now, there's also a case to be made on the other side that, uh, at least in manufacturing, every job you create creates three more jobs in the economy. It has an incredibly good multiplier effect in the economy. So you can make that case, although it's kind of not linear. So I, I think there's, I think you should tax rich people. I think taxing the rich to pay for programs is a really basic, simple, it's the price of civilization. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that objections to it are fine. If people want to, you know, pretend that it's going to pay for itself, maybe it will. Maybe we'll have another surplus. Wouldn't that be a delightful thing? What, what a horrible problem to have six years <laughs> from now. Though. What are we going to do with this awful budget surplus? Well, then George Bush III is going to come along and right. say, well, we need to cut taxes, and we're right. going to go through this whole thing again. Give you back your money. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, but for now, I think, oh, you mean we might risk having more money than we thought we did? Well, okay, I'm willing to take that risk. The the uh, Digby the our friend uh, David Dayan at the American Prospect he wrote in his uh, first 100 newsletter on Wednesday he said uh, about the American Families Plan the short version is I've never in my political lifetime been more optimistic about the stated priorities of the upper echelons of the government and I've never been more pessimistic about the prospects of actually getting them into law. Is his pessimism well placed there? And I'll and and I guess this needs to be the section where we throw in the name Joe Manchin, <laughs> our Lord and Savior. Long may he reign. Uh, he seems to oppose increasing uh, taxes for reasons I don't understand. Republicans say that it will kill jobs, even though the increase is on corporations, which is very popular, and on those making more than a million dollars a year. Is that argument actually going to convince average Americans to oppose increasing taxes on millionaires, as the Republicans seem to be uh, making, and as Joe Manchin seems to be buying? Well, let me let me make a couple of observations. First of all, I think that um, the you know the the day in saying that I think I think what he's saying, and I heard him say this on on another show actually. Mm-hmm. It, it's separate. You have to separate out this idea that you have to have a pay for for this from the idea that it might pay for the, pay for itself, mm-hmm. and from the idea that you have this very cheap money right now, where you can the government can borrow a lot of money very mm-hmm. cheaply, and that, and also, I mean, this is this is you know from the MMT people on the one end to even Paul Krugman in the New York Times is saying, look, everybody relax about this, okay? It's a good time to borrow money. Let's borrow it and get all this stuff done because we need to do it. You know, the country needs it. There'll be jobs and whatever. So. The idea being, and I think that Dan would back me on this, that I think that they're going to separate this out. I think what's going to happen is is that they're going to get people on the record saying, we are not going to do these tax cuts. It's terrible. Joe Manchin, too, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we're not, I'm, we're not cutting taxes any more than... I mean, I'm not well, raising taxes. Yeah. Sorry, right. tax hikes. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to raise taxes, you know, more than this, this, and this. And, you know, of course, as Driftglass says, there's a moral, you know, imperative here to raise taxes on the rich. They've been making money hand over fist, especially in the past year when, they're, when you've had lines of cars waiting at food banks. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're just, you know, raking it in because the stock market's been doing well. And, and so, you know, there's, of course, there's a moral imperative. We all know that income inequality is a huge problem. 
But is that going to be something that they absolutely believe they have to address in these two tranches of the, you know, the, the infrastructure plan and the family, the American family plan? Do they feel they need to do that? And I have a sneaking suspicion that's going to be what gets jettisoned is the tax hikes. Mm. Now, granted, that's going to cause a huge upheaval yeah. on the left, and for good reason. But on the economic side of it, if this may not be the time when that is, you know, that, and what it does is it, it gets rid of this idea of pay-fors, right, which is pay-go and mm-hmm. all that stuff. That is a poison pill it when you want to do big things. And it would and be so, good to get rid of that, Heather. i got to get to a break here. It would be good to get yeah. rid of that, but I'm worried that, uh, you know, if they say, oh, we're not going to do these tax hikes, then Republicans will say, therefore, it is too expensive. We can't afford it, so we're not going to do any of it. Uh, speaking of what Republicans are going to say, let me take a quick break here. We'll come back uh, with our just closing few minutes. We'll have to do this quickly to discuss the uh, what sufficed for the Republican response to Joe Biden's uh, joint address to Congress on Wednesday night with our guests, Heather Digby-Parton and the great Drift Glass. Uh, you are listening to the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Our nightmare election may be over, but new ones are on the way. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to do it. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to make an automated monthly pledge of any amount you like or even just a one-time-only contribution to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. The fight for voting rights, civil rights, and to save our planet continues. Please help us continue that fight independently over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com donate right now. Go ahead, do it right now. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. We will meet the center challenge of the age by proving that democracy is durable and strong. We've stared into the abyss of insurrection and autocracy, pandemic and pain. And we, the people, did not flinch. The very moment our adversaries were certain we'd pull apart and fail, we came together, we united. Folks, as I told every world leader I've ever met with over the years, It's never, ever, ever been a good bet to bet against America, and it still isn't. We're the United States of America. There is not a single thing, nothing, nothing beyond our capacity. We can do whatever we set our minds to if we do it together. So let's begin to get together. God bless you all, and may God protect our troops. We've got to work together. Working on it. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Yes, you are staring into the abyss known as the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Uh, We have just a minute or two finishing up our special coverage of Joe Biden's first address to Congress with Digby, Driftglass, and Desi. Uh, Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, the only Republican African-American senator gave the uh, the GOP response to the address, which I actually thought was one of the better response speeches I have seen in a while, at least on the performance level. The substance 
level was a different matter entirely, uh, describing Joe Biden as a divisive president, pulling uh, the country apart and including this somewhat remarkable comment. Hear me clearly. America is not a racist country. It's backwards to fight discrimination with different types of discrimination. And it's wrong to try to use our painful past to dishonestly shut down debates in the present. All right, guys, I hate to do this because it's completely not fair, but I'm only going to have time to give you about 30 seconds each. Uh, Let me start with uh, Digby on this one. Uh, Your response, your thoughts, or, or should we just be ignoring the GOP response from Tim Scott entirely? Yeah, I think uh, Tim Scott's a talented politician, and, you know, I think he did a good job delivering that, but the substance was ridiculous, and I think that everybody knew it. And he got a snootful, I'm afraid, from black Twitter. Uh, They didn't like what he was saying at all. So, you know, I'm not sure uh, how effective that was with either, you know, African Americans or with uh, right-wing racists. I have a feeling it didn't really go over with <laughs> it, either one. It didn't even yeah. sell for right-wing racists. No, I, don't think, I think it was pure gaslighting, and that's, that's I think, enough Americans could see right through it. D- uh, Drift Glass, your closing thoughts there. On the substance, uh, Tim Scott is the Ron Christie of Michael Steele's. <laughs> <laughs> I will let people look that up in their, uh, well, actually, you might not want to look it up online to find out who Ron Christie is. But uh, well done, Drift Glass. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, you can find uh, him and Fran uh, Blue Gal and their uh, Pro Left podcast. You can find them at ProLeftPod.com. You can, of course, find the great Heather Digby Parton at Salon.com and at Digby'sBlog.net and on the Twitters at digby 56 don't go looking for drift glass on the Twitters. Sorry. But uh, thank you guys both for joining us. Really enjoyed it today. You were awesome as always. Real pleasure. Thanks. Thanks as well to our producer, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible by those who support us at bradblog.com slash donate. You can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And you can still find me on the Twitters and the Facebooks at the Brad Blog. We will see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. That's what that-